You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO, with episodes launching bi-weekly on Tuesdays. For episode three, we catch up with Frank Watanabe, president and CEO of Arcutis. Continue listening and find out what led to an atrophying of the dermatology pipeline. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Frank. My pleasure, Simon. I'm Simon, co-founder and CEO of Vile. We started the company with a mission to reimagine trials and make them far more efficient for sponsors, just like Arcutis. Frank, would love to do a, a quick introduction for the audience before we jump in. I'm Frank Watanabe, and I'm the president and CEO of Arcutis. I was the third employee at the company, and we've been around for a little over six years with a mission to become the leading innovation-driven company in the dermatology space. Fantastic. We're huge fans of Arcutis. You've been a huge advocate of not only what you're doing in the space, but also dermatology research more broadly. Give us a sense of level of investment where you'd like to see it, what's holding that back, and taking a macro lens, I know it's something you think a lot about. If you take a step back, I think the challenge in dermatology has been that over the last couple of decades, there's been massive consolidation in the dermatology industry. We actually did a study a number of years ago. There were 140 mergers and acquisitions in dermatology. And there was a lot of uh, roll-ups in a couple of fairly large companies that didn't do a lot of R&D. And that really led to an atrophying of the dermatology pipeline and the obliteration of pure medderm companies, right? So what we were left with was a bunch of large pharma companies who happened to have a dermatology product, but not a true commitment to dermatology. And then about six, seven, eight years ago, a new wave of smaller companies started up, again, purely focused medderm companies with a focus on innovation. And unfortunately, a few of them didn't make it and haven't survived, but there are several of us who are still around and who are now starting to bring really innovative products to the market that solve for problems that doctors and patients have struggled with. For example, we just had not that long ago, the first new acne drug approved in 40 years. That's amazing, right? Psoriasis, we've had two products approved in the last year for the first time in 26 years. There's not been anything new in seborrheic dermatitis in about four decades. Atopic dermatitis has been a little more fortunate. They've had a couple of innovations, but there's still huge unmet needs in the atopic dermatitis space. And then we think about other diseases like HS or PN, and there's nothing, right? Vitiligo just had its very first drug approved ever. We still don't have a good topical for alopecia areata. So just massive swaths of the marketplace that doctors don't have very good options. And fortunately, I think there is a, a real burgeoning now of R&D in the dermatology space. I think you guys probably see it in bile with all of the trials you guys are running. And I think it's a really exciting time to be a dermatologist or dermatology clinician since NPs and PAs play a really important role in the space as well, because you all of a sudden you have all these new options for your patients and you're able to offer something new, some hope after having for many years, not had anything to offer them. Yeah. And we're certainly seeing it firsthand. I'm curious, the dermatologists we talk to will tell us about unmet need in the clinic. And it tends not to be some of the leading indications. It tends to be, oh, no one's been working on melasma, or I'd really like to see some monochromycosis. or everyone's got their kind of their pet. Unmet yep. need. I'm curious, when you think about the market, what's still unmet? What are some of the key areas that you think are maybe not talked about as much as they should be? I think there's two ways to answer that. I think that, for example, if you're a moderate to severe psoriasis patient, you have tons of great options, right? Some of the IL-23s 
are remarkable, life-changing drugs if you're moderate to severe. Right. That's only a quarter of psoriasis patients, right? So what if you're mild to moderate and you don't qualify for a biologic? And what's really exciting, I think, now in psoriasis is that the mild to moderate patients now have some great new options for treatment as well. Atopic dermatitis is still catching up. Again, we've got some really good biologics like Upixent, Adbury, and Lebrachizumab should be here soon, but there's still a lot of work to be done in the moderate to severe atopic dermatitis space. And again, in the mild to moderate, there's nothing. Now, there are a couple of drugs in development, including one from Arcutus for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, but still a huge unmet need. I think acne is another area where there's still very large unmet needs. And then you do get into some of these smaller diseases where there really isn't anything or there's very, very little. You think about a drug or disease like vitiligo, and I think the data with JAK inhibitors is promising, but do patients really want to take the risk of taking a systemic JAK inhibitor to treat yeah. their vitiligo. And that's the crux, I think, of one of the challenges in dermatology is that many times patients and doctors are having to make a choice between efficacy on the one hand and safety on the other. And that's not a choice that anyone should ever have to make. So we need to start finding drugs that are both effective and safe and well-tolerated and also fit into patients' lives. A twice-a-day ointment is a non-starter for a parent. I've been there myself. That just is not going to work. It may work. It may be safe. But if you got to strip your kid down twice a day and slather them in Vaseline, that's not going to happen, right? We need drugs that fit in their lives and that patients will use and they're both safe and effective. Yeah. Adherence to topicals is always what Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Let's talk about you know, two, three, four, five years out. I know a lot of people watch the approvals and know what's coming through the clinic now. I'm curious what you think the next generation around the corner, Jack Tick combinations, a lot of talk, cell and gene therapy starting to make its way in a little bit, targeted RNA. Are you tracking? You know, I, I think for some of these more exotic modalities like cell therapy and gene therapy, I think the challenge is going to be cost, right? If you have a life-threatening disease or you have a very small number of patients, maybe the healthcare system can afford pay for a drug like that. But even again, you take the example of biologics and psoriasis, as wonderful as those drugs are, they're not used in the majority of patients primarily because of the cost. These are large populations. And so drugs need to be widely available if you're really going to treat the majority of patients out there. And that's why Arcutus has been so focused on responsible pricing so that more patients can get access to the innovation. I do think that Jack Tick, that's kind of an interesting question. You know, Tick is actually Jack 4. It's all part of the same family. And I think what's interesting about drugs is that hitting Tick 2 looks like you may be able to avoid some of the issues of Jack. So if you make a Tick-Jack combination, have you just thrown out the baby with the bathwater? I, I don't know. I think we're going to have to see. I do think though, as new products come to market, Arcutus, for example, now has a product on the market where we're generating revenue. That gives us financial resources to invest in other areas of research. For instance, we just acquired a very exciting new target in atopic dermatitis, a biologic for the moderate to severe patients that we're hoping is an improvement on the IL-4s and the IL-13s. But I think new products coming to market, you create this virtuous cycle where the innovation-driven companies have more money to invest in R&D. I think we're going to have to see does ROR gamma work? I don't know. I think it's going to be an interesting question. CD200R, the asset that we just acquired, could have broad application across a whole range of different inflammatory diseases. I think that's another very exciting target potentially. And if you look at psoriasis again, we went from the TNFs to the 17s to the 23s. And every time we saw big upticks in efficacy, right? We haven't cracked that code yet in AD. 
it's either more complicated than we think it is, or we haven't found the right target yet. And I think that the research will continue. I think itch is an area, understanding itch and treating itch is an area that's very interesting. I think doctors often don't appreciate how maddening the itch can be for patients. For example, in psoriasis, it's the most bothersome symptom for patients, right? The patients can live with the plaques as long as they don't itch. And most of them itch. If you have an idiopathic itch, boy, that's really got to be maddening. Nothing's worked yet to specifically target and treat itch, but there's a lot of work going on in that space. So I think that could be another area that's very interesting. I think there's a whole range of different areas, though, that I think we're going to see innovations, maybe not in all of them or all of them at the same speed. I think the increasing interest around like HS is really exciting. Terrible disease with no good treatment, but a lot of activity going on in the labs and in the clinic trying to solve that problem now. And that's only going to be good for patients and doctors. Let's transition to talking about your career path, your growth from employee number three to now CEO of the organization that you oversee today. I'm curious, key lessons learned in going from early stage biotech startup to now commercial stage. So first of all, I've done this a few times. This is my third startup. And secondly, I'm a commercial guy by background. So it's fun to actually get to that point. If I think back on Arcutus and what's made us successful I think one of the most important things was having a very clear strategy about how we were going to be successful. And that really boiled down to three things, focusing on biologically validated targets, things that we already knew worked in dermatology, looking for best in class molecules. We don't do me too products. And then the third one, and I think this is really important and relevant probably for Vial too, is having people with deep dermatology expertise. I continue to be amazed at how people think that they can run a dermatology company or a big dermatology franchise without a dermatologist. Would anyone run an oncology company without an oncologist? I don't think so, right? Most drug companies seem to think that dermatology is okay to do without a dermatologist. We actually have seven dermatology clinicians at Arcutus. Employee number two, who joined a couple weeks before me, was a dermatologist. He's now on our board, but we have seven other dermatologists. And, And that's important for a couple of reasons. The first one is that these are all people who have walked in the shoes of our customers, who, and many of them still practice. And they know what doctors and patients need from the efficacy to safety and tolerability and convenience and even like payer burdens, that sort of thing. And the other thing is, I think, and you probably again see this, in designing clinical studies, people who have treated the patients that you're studying understand things that an oncologist or a rheumatologist may not really appreciate. And I think that's really given us an edge in choosing programs, in designing programs, and conducting programs. And now it's helping us also as we commercialize our product. Let's talk about commercialization. You said you're a commercial guy. It's a big investment for a biotech to go all the way. Seems to be happening a little bit more and more. What's your sense of, one, the shift from biotechs commercializing themselves and not selling to pharma? And two, if you were sitting down with a, a biotech founder who was exploring the options of NPV math, doing the calculations, running the abacus math, going full of the commercial or selling, how would you advise them? One of my mentors was always fond of saying that companies are bought, they're not sold, right? And what he meant by that was if you have a strategy of being bought and nobody shows up to buy you, you have a very big problem. You can't go into this with a strategy that someone's going to buy you. If you are very successful, there's a decent chance that someone is going to come along and buy you, but that can't be your base case, right? And that's the approach that we've always taken at Arcutus, that we were in this for the long haul and we were going to build the company. And if someone took us out, we can't control that. But the other thing that really has, I think, driven us at Arcutus is 
and your listeners, the dermatologists out there know this, there are very few pure derm companies in the industry left. I believe that's something that the dermatology community needs. And so I would be perfectly happy to remain an independent company forever and just continue to serve dermatologists and the people that they treat. Because I think that dermatologists deserve that, right? Skin diseases often get downplayed. You know, it's not going to kill you or it's just your skin. I don't believe that for a second. If you have high cholesterol or diabetes or even cancer, most people don't know that you have the disease. And so they treat you just like everyone else. If you have vitiligo or plaque psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, it changes your entire relationship with the world. And the data is very clear, whether it's psychosocial burden or impact on work or relationships and sexual functioning, everything is impacted when you have a dermatologic disease. And dermatologists and the people they treat deserve companies that are focused solely on serving them and solving their problems. And that's why we have been focused from day one on building a leading company in the space. You've done a great job on diversity. I feel like on a day goes by on here, someone talking about you guys setting a great standard and high bar on diversity in clinical trial, the diversity of your team, the initiatives you guys are running. Tell us more about how you keep this kind of front and center at the company and what some of the initiatives are that you're proud of. Yeah, I, I think in my mind, those are, are two separate issues, right? Within the team, within Arcutus, diversity and inclusion is really about finding the best people, regardless of their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, their prior employer, right? And I believe that having diverse backgrounds and different perspectives allows you to make better decisions, right? When everyone agrees something is wrong, you should be very worried about something. So that's really how we focus on it. This is trying to create an environment where everyone feels valued for their contributions and everyone is treated equally in terms of opportunity. From a clinical trial standpoint, I think about it very differently. And again, this is particularly because we're in the dermatology space. Doctors need information on how drugs treat different ethnic groups, right? Every one of, of your listeners knows you can't assume that because it works well in a fits one, it's going to work the same in a fits six, especially when we often see the disease manifests itself differently. Again, take plaque psoriasis. A plaque psoriasis in a FITS1 can look very different than in a FITS6, right? And so I think we have an obligation as a drug company, as an industry, to generate the data for our customers so that they can make an informed decision. Can I expect this drug to work the same across various skin types? Or do I need to think about using this drug for the ones through threes and that drug for the fours through sixes. And we have approached our trial design that way, and we've made a commitment to that. And I think it's one thing to say that you're going to focus on diversity and inclusion in trials. It's another thing to actually do it. And we put a great deal of time and attention at looking at who we're enrolling in our trials. One of the things that we're doing to try and improve that is who we select to be as clinical investigators. Where is the practice and who do they serve? What's their catchment area? That has a big impact on enrollment. For example, we use a lot of sites in Florida and Texas because they're very good at enrolling Hispanic subjects. California is very good for us for Asian subjects. African-Americans are particularly challenging. In addition to the catchment area issue, you also have some of the historical issues of biomedical research in the African-American community. And so I think in that instance, sometimes having an African-American investigator in an African-American area can also help versus having a Caucasian investigator in an African-American area. But what we're doing now is identifying people who are interested in clinical research, but who don't have a lot of experience yet and training them up if 
they have a particularly good ability to recruit, enroll the right kinds of patients. And that I think long-term is going to help the whole industry in terms of improving our diversity enrollment. Because you guys know, you tend to go to the more experienced investigators, right? If you always go to the same investigators, you're going to get the exact same patient types, right? <laughs> See, you got to somehow break out of the mold. And that's one of the things that we're specifically doing to improve the diversity of our trial enrollment. Well, thank you for your great work there. Like you said, moving the industry forward. So we thank you for it. We have a segment called Overrated, Underrated. I'll send you one line statements. You tell me whether they're currently overrated or underrated. We'll start out with what you were talking about earlier, atopic dermatitis, slew of activity, lots of clinical trials. I think every site across the country would tell you how many competing trials they're running. Have we hit the peak of the boom? Overrated, underrated, are we earlier late in the innings of AD? In terms of the market? Yeah. Underrated. This is a bigger market than psoriasis. Sure. I like it. Talk to you about psoriasis, genomic, transcriptomic, other kind of omic profiling. Underrated, overrated, the ability and the promise there. Overrated. Say more. I think this is not like oncology, right? We don't have the tools to actually leverage this knowledge. And so I don't see how it is going to have a meaningful impact, at least with the tools that we have today in terms of the treatment of patients. It's like nice to know, but okay, what do I do now? So what? Uh, fair enough. And lastly, the size of the pruritus market, generalized the, the chronic pruritus that we talk about. What's your sense of the, the size of that market overrated? Underrated? I, I think it's underrated. I think there are a whole lot more itchy patients out there than people realize. And I think that people care about itch a whole lot more than people realize. I had some sort of idiopathic itch on the side of my head last year for about six months. It just about drove me crazy. And it wasn't that bad an itch, right? You talk about a psoriasis or an atopic dermatitis or seborrheic dermatitis patient who are who's itching every day of their lives, 24-7 over a significant portion of their body. I don't know how they don't go mad. I really don't. As we talked earlier, I think itch is a huge area of opportunity for the dermatology community to improve the lives of their patients. Let us know if the itch comes back. We'll get you into a trial. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> okay. Well, now I'll just get some Zareep, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe a difficult market. Everyone's watching XBI. Uh, biotech founders out there who are at a different stage of company and reconsidering how to think about capital allocation strategy. Any advice for them as they go through turbulent times? It's a really, it's a very challenging time. I think that this too shall pass, right? We've all, if you've been around the industry before, we go through these cycles. I think that there is going to be a culling of the field. And particularly on the public side, I think there were far too many companies that went public that probably shouldn't have been public. And they're either going to go back to being private, they're going to consolidate, or they're going to disappear. I think it's going to be painful, but that's probably a necessary step. But having said that, if you can winter the storm, if you can ride out the storm, there's going to be greener pastures on the other side. There always is. So I think it's important that folks are judicious in their capital allocation. Don't spend on everything. Don't spend profligately. Try and get as far as you can with the cash that you have. And when the opportunity arises, raise cash, right? Uh, I, I, uh, every private company, you get in this discussions about dilution. One of my board members was fond of saying that no one ever died from dilution, but plenty of people starve for lack of cash. So even if it's a down round, it's better than going out of business. And so if the opportunity arises, I would say, you know, take the money and live to fight another day because it will get better. I promise it will get better. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate the conversation today. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, and Google.